morning, Transit Church. It's good to be here today. We're in our final um, sermon for our Titus series. We're talking about what it looks like to be a healthy church that's on mission. So we're talking about a healthy mission today, and we'll be um, reading Titus 3 this morning. Um, in this In this epistle, Paul is writing to Titus. He's instructing Titus how to set up leadership for the church. And he ends in this chapter with making clear what a healthy mission looks like or a healthy church that does mission well. So healthiness is going to produce certain fruits. And so this idea of healthy mission is not just something we're laying on to the text. It's something that the Bible is instructing us in that a healthy church has the outflow of a healthy mission. And we'll be talking about healthy leaders that lead a healthy church into healthy mission. I think Titus 3 goes there. What we're going to find is Jesus' mission to us fuels our mission because Jesus' mission is our mission. So in this text, what we're going to see is that Jesus has, has some things for us to do. And then we're going to get into the reason why we can have fruit, right? We're going to get into the reason why we can be on healthy mission. And what we're going to see is that Jesus has a tenacious mission towards us to come and redeem us, to come and rescue us, and to satisfy his wrath. And then we're going to see that the unfolding of rejoicing in the centrality of the gospel starts to churn out healthy mission. So it's really just all connected. That's where we're going in our text. Let's read Titus 3 together, and then I'm going to pray and we'll jump into this. So we've got Titus 3 up here. Let's read together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you today. You make alive for us the book that you wrote. You make alive to us the reality of Jesus. You you come and reveal to us that which is ultimately true. And I pray you would take our minds and our hearts, God, and lead us out of just appreciating the reality that we're in into the reality of King Jesus, his love for us, God, and, and the mission that he's called us to. Lord, thank you that we're justified by your grace. And I pray your grace would unleash today. God, I pray that you would take us, God, out of bondage, that you'd loosen us, God, out of, of, of neck holds that the enemy has us in. And I, I pray, Lord, for deliverance today to see the gospel rightly, to see Jesus as he is, and to be undone, God, and, and changed for your glory. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your mission towards us has set us free. And I pray you'd launch us into mission in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses one through three, he's, Paul's writing to Titus saying, remind them. (laughs) Why? Because we forget so easily. He just starts out, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then verse three is interesting. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. It's as if Paul's saying to Titus, look, human nature doesn't just naturally go out and do good works, right? And, and, and it gets tricky here because we're a gospel-centered church and we believe the Bible and we believe grace. And so it's weird to open up, do, 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 done, done, do. And it's like, okay, have I spoken evil of anyone lately? Am I gentle? Am I avoiding quarreling? And Paul goes back into, we are foolish. Without the grace of God, without his love for us, without receiving that, these are the things, right, that we are. And so we have to be reminded. And not only that, we have to remind people. That's why we're going through Titus. Good leadership looks like reminding people constantly of what it looks like to live the gospel. And so he's giving us instruction on these things. The church has to be reminded that grace produces godliness. And a disposition of waiting on Jesus that bears fruit 
So we're, we're waiting on Jesus. His grace has come, and, and he's making us like him. And then we're starting to work out like he works out, like he loves. So, so the grace from Jesus produces in us a Christ-like attitude and Christ-like good works. And uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14 is really where I got that from. It's, it's the precedent of, man, look at Jesus and as we look at Jesus, we become like Jesus and we do what Jesus did. Grace fuels godliness and godliness fuels good works. And Paul reminds Titus to remind the church. So why bring up verse 3? Why bring the negative reminders into the picture? Paul is reminding Titus of the nature of sin and the fruit opposite of living in grace. So there's, there's a trajectory going on here where there should feel a sense of, well, let me, let me just say right now, we should be identifying with these things in our heart, knowing that we need God's grace and that there is sin in our lives and that we, we, we should be so aware of that that we become desperate for the grace of Jesus. So you're in a courtroom and the judge is listing the things you've done. <laughs> Just starts going through. Man, you did that. Traffic violation. Oh, that was an accident. I love the HOV lane. I can't help it. I do it every day. <laughs> it's my favorite. Okay, so one time I went to court because I didn't pay a ticket in time. All these knickknack things. Man, if you let your registration expire... Within like a couple weeks, you might get like six tickets. And I just hold up my previous ticket and be like, I'm still under this ticket. So if you write me another ticket. So I went to court one time and I <laughs> feel like, just pile them on. I'm only paying one. I'm like, I'm like, I start to think I don't have to update my registration until the due date on this ticket because <laughs> I'm safe. Um, that's, that's how I think. So one time, I kind of missed the deadline to pay it online. And like a fool, I went to court and sat through all of traffic court. Some people would be like, I plead the fifth and the second and the first. And they're like, okay, sir, turn around, put handcuffs on him, walk him out. I mean, it was like the craziest experience of my life. And uh, I go up, you know, I'm like, out of 105 people, I'm like 102nd. And I'm like, everyone else has been a moron thus far. And I get up there, and the cop that pulled me over that one time was there. And the judge says, all right, do you have your updated registration? I'm like, no. <laughs> I just knew I had a court date. Like, I just, I just had to show up, right? They're, they're like, they're like why are you here? Go pay your ticket right now and get that registration updated. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. So, I mean, there's... We justify things. We don't understand things. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in courtrooms. Um, but here's the thing. The things listed here in the first few verses are a reminder of what we have done, of who we are, or who we were. See, sinners produce sin. And without the grace of God to change us, right, we're just going to keep producing sin no matter what. And the list begins to paint a picture of what kind of judgment would be just. So if you were to stand before God, the judge, 
And he starts listing everything you've done. I mean, there begins to set in a weight. I deserve this kind of judgment. Like there begins to click. All right, I'm seeing more clearly what I've done. And I'm seeing more clearly what this kind of deeds, what my kind of character deserves in terms of judgment, the more the judge goes on. To understand God's grace, we must understand his justice, that God holds us to a high standard, the law, all right, that he set before us. And verse 4 says, but, just linger there for a moment. Got a judge listing all this stuff, right? You did this, you did this. Why are you in my courtroom? Go pay your ticket right now. But if you're in a courtroom, you don't expect a but, an an adversative, a change of direction, a judgment contrary to the evidence. You list out everything I've done that's extremely wicked. I don't expect the judge to be like, but... We love you. But there's a... All right. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, enter an advocate. Enter someone that knows all that you've done. Enter the judge's son. If you're in a courtroom, you don't expect a but. It's the times when my guiltiness is most exposed and my brokenness is most evident to everyone and I'm still loved. It is then that I feel most loved. When, you're, when, when the record of your sins is fully on display and in walks an advocate saying, I know these things about you, but... My goodness, my loving kindness is now coming for you. That's the gospel. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. How can there be a but, a change of direction? Everyone knows that I'm guilty. There's witnesses. Far be it from me. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that the 102 people before me, I'm laughing at their stuff. Right? And then when I get up there, I feel like a moron. But God's goodness. But not my goodness or your goodness. Right? It doesn't say, but... There's been some good things in your life that outweigh the bad things. Maybe even this goodness is not just goodness towards us, but the goodness of Jesus to represent you in the courtroom. Maybe this goodness is not, you know what, I'm going to have some charity and some mercy, but I'm going to stand before you, for you, with my record. And how many of you know that Jesus' record is perfect? Come on. He saved us, verse 5, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He intervened, right? 
God has mercy. He has mercy and he displays mercy. His character is mercy, his outworking of his character of mercy. All that God is, he displays. This is the character of God to come after us, to save us, to see us as we are and to intervene. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You can't stand there and list stuff before the judge. But I've done this, but I've done that. You'll miss out on this advocate standing in your place, wanting to represent you. God saved us, but not because of us, not because of our worthiness, but because of his worthiness. We must not allow room for the notion that God saw something good in us. He's got potential. I'm doing money ball here, guys. Just want all the scrappy people to be on my team and we'll have one heck of a hearty team. It's not what he's going for here. He's displaying his character towards us because his character trumps our character. He didn't look at our good records. He looked at the good record of Jesus. You did nothing to be declared righteous before God. It was according to his mercy. And there is a tension and a unity in the expression of God's justice and mercy. If God is showing mercy and there's no sign of justice, then is God forgiving the sinner without dealing with the sin. So does God come in and say, you know what, clean record. No one's got to pay the fine. No one's got to pay the penalty. I'm just this loving, good God that just wants to dismiss you. Or does he keep account? And is our bad record paid for? Does God shift his stance on sin or was there a representative willing to swap judgments? Verses five and six say this, according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Holy Spirit comes and seals us through Jesus and verse seven shows us what's going on. On here, we're getting into the heart of the gospel now. Verse 7 So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Does God put aside his justice to display his mercy? Does God say, Ha, love wins? Boom, you were right, Rob Bell. Does God say, I have changed? And I've learned the wisdom of the times and I'm now progressive in my thinking. And you know what? Everyone deserves a second chance. Is that what God's doing here? Or is Yahweh holy all the time? The same yesterday, today, and forever. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. If God is holy and hates sin, then he must exercise his righteous judgment. So how does he let us go free? Is God changing in character? Is he saying, I'll be whoever you want me to be? Or is there a beautiful tension of God displaying both his mercy and his justice? God does not 
put aside his wrath. God fully displays his wrath. And there are two options. You can be under it or you can be under Jesus who bore it for you. So what happened on the cross, this is what David Platt said. I love how I'll be preparing for a sermon that happened upon a YouTube video that I'm like, "Mm, that was good. I need to include that. David Platt says this, the miracle of what Jesus did for us is not that he took a crown of thorns, not that he took lashings, not, not that he stood before Pontius Pilate, not that he got on a cross, but that. Because there's other people that have suffered crucifixion. It's that the fullness of God's wrath was expressed on Jesus Christ. In God's wrath of saying, you did not meet my standard. I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. And you were not holy. He said, I need to express the fullness of my mercy and the fullness of my justice. God didn't put aside one to display the other. He displayed both. And he sent his son to say, son, I need you to take their place. And the son said, I want to take their place. I want to stand in their place so that when they believe upon me, they will be justified. Their record done away with. And I will give them my record and it will be my grace, my unmerited favor towards them to represent them, to display them before you and to take the wrath that they deserve. You can be under it or you can be under Jesus who bore it for you. This is the gospel. The gospel is that God's wrath will be expressed in that final day. You don't see it right now. We've got iPhones and iPads to distract us and 401ks we're trying to build. But when Jesus comes back, that's fading away. And the fullness of God's wrath will be displayed and you'll be under him. Jesus, who can bear it for you, or you'll be under God's wrath alone. Only a holy God could appease a holy God. The thing that separates Jesus' suffering from all other suffering is that only he bore the full wrath of God. Justice happened before justification happened. Hmm. Here's some warnings. We must not dismiss God's wrath and align ourselves with the thinking of our world. The moment we dismiss God's wrath is the moment that we dismiss the fact that we need someone to absolve his wrath for us. If we start to go away with the notion that God is fully displaying justice, we won't see a need for Jesus. That's why Paul says to Titus, remind them. If we do not understand the law of God, his character and holiness, then we will not understand what Jesus did for us. 
The tension of God's justice and God's grace is the most beautiful unity because they're both found in Jesus. When you go to Jesus, you see the fullness of God's wrath displayed and you say, wow, he did that for me. Right? Like no one else did that. And he gives you grace to invite you in, not just to save you from your sin, but to be part of the family of God, to know Jesus intimately, to know the Father intimately. He gave us what we don't deserve. He gave us grace. He gave us Jesus. Not only are we shielded from God's wrath in Jesus, but we receive all the blessings of God in Jesus. There is no hope for eternal life apart from the unifying expression of God's grace and wrath being mediated to us in Jesus. So Jesus in my place for my sin, set before, right? To all of God through him for us. Now, grace fuels the mission and is the mission. You're like, we haven't even talked about the mission of the church yet. (laughs) No. The mission of Jesus is the mission of the church, and the mission of the church is to point to the mission of Jesus. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice Paul wants Titus to insist on these things. Why? Because we forget. What does he want Titus to insist on? To be submissive. That we were once enslaved to sin, but God, saved not because of works, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when you're reading the Bible, and there's questions being drawn up, or there's becauses, go back and, and, and make connections of how is this all piecing together and make, make sense of it. We have been justified by his grace. We have avoided God's wrath because Jesus took it, and we received the hope of eternal life in Jesus because Jesus will live eternally. Church, It's not just pastors who are supposed to remind and insist on these things. Remind yourself and remind others of the goodness of God. Everyone can say the fullness of God's wrath will be expressed, but Jesus was given to us so that we might be justified by his grace. So the Bible talks about justification by faith. What God requires of us is that we believe in Jesus, in who he is, fully and have faith in him, but that only comes about by grace. It's because Jesus gave us his grace and awakened us to him by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that we even see him and have faith. God gave us grace graciously. The tone of God's grace was not just oh, well, I guess I'll fully express myself, both my justice and my mercy. It was, I want to give you the goodness of who I am. I want to lavish upon you all that is in Jesus. 
I want to give you the fullness of who I am. And he did it with an attitude of absolute love towards us. He did not begrudgingly give us his son. Some of you need to know this. But Lord, I've done such terrible things. I want to love you. I want to love you. I want to display my grace graciously. We need to see that the Father, that the Son, that the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus Christ, look upon us, not with disdain, but with absolute love, because what Jesus did was fully enough. In grace, generous lavishing, <clears throat> he gave us generous lavishing. He gave us his goodness. All right, so here's an illustration. I'm really bad at illustrations. I was like, Lord, send an illustration from heaven. Go to like illustrations.com. <laughs> These are terrible. It's like someone coloring with a colored pencil. This is not what I want. In Christ... We stand at the foot of the Hoover Dam as it breaks open. Okay, so if you're standing at the foot of the Hoover Dam, and everybody has to stand at the foot of the Hoover Dam once in their lifetime while it breaks open. Just there and... Just coming down on you. And there was only one person that could stand in front of you and absorb the full shock of the Hoover Dam breaking over you, would you not take that person's grace and say, yes, I will stand under you? Otherwise, I'm being washed away in this flood. I'm going to die. I'm going to die if I stand under the breaking of this dam and just get washed away and probably hit my head on some rocks. I was in Nepal once. And uh, we went all over the countryside and decided to get off into a river. And I stepped a little bit too far into the river and just got... (laughs) And I started yelling, help, because I was being washed away. I could not find my footing. My dad's on the shore with a camcorder saying, isn't Peter so funny? I'm like, I'm the boy who cried wolf. Now I'm about to drown, and my dad thinks I'm just some jokester. (laughs) Currents are strong. There's There's a fear that comes when something that's stronger than you carries you away, and God's wrath is that way. But Jesus stood in our place, receiving, absorbing the fullness of the wrath of God. And here's the thing, mission, church. If Jesus did that for you, does it not fuel in you a desire to let people know that there is only one person that can stand in your place for your sin and absorb the fullness of the wrath of God that is to come? if we don't operate that way and haven't fully received it and and don't become heralders of the good news, (laughs) yeah, he took it. He took the wrath for me. God does have wrath. It will be fully expressed. But Jesus came 
and gave me his grace and didn't just rescue me from that, but he, he changed me and he's, he's made me alive in him and I've seen the goodness of who he is. I want, I want to let people know. I want to... I want to be a human being that feels and knows that other people are going to suffer. They're not told about Jesus. Because grace is being lavished upon us in Christ, we are fueled and positioned for an overflow of good works that testify of his lavish goodness. I mean, if if you've gone into the nucleus of who God is and the overflow of him just working on your behalf, working for you, It stirs in us this desire to let other people know about him. So this fuels the mission of the church. Jesus taking my place, receiving the wrath of God, and Jesus giving me his place and receiving an inheritance from the Father. This is the gospel. We are not just on mission. We are evidence of his mission. The mission is ultimately Jesus' mission, But because his mission was to save us and bless us in him, we are equipped and commissioned to tell people that someone can save us. So, what is the mission? 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All that God is in character, he has demonstrated. We need to know this. We need to have a theology of God. It says God's going to be who he is. He doesn't care if we set standards and expectations in this life. I mean, they just shift, right? If I'm getting swept away in a river, you know, my my experience subjective to where I am in that river. If I'm standing on the rock, not being tossed around by the river. It was a rock that got me out of that river. This wasn't an intentional illustration. Um, but I slammed into a big rock in that river in Nepal and held on to it and was able to climb out. And uh, just a picture of Jesus. We can hold on to Jesus in the shifting world. The mission of the church is to declare the praises of Jesus who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Another way of saying it in this context, because we're talking about the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to enjoy and declare that Jesus has taken our place before God. Enjoy it. Bask in it. Let the world know that we're different because he saved us and it brings a joy and it takes away a weightiness that we don't have to walk around with. He took our place before God, received his wrath, and has given us the fullness of his grace. God did not just harbor his glory. He decided to, dis- to put it on display. He did it by winning a people. We are the radiance of his image. 
Jesus is the radiance of the image of God the Father. But through the church, the world can see, man, Jesus is glowing. Jesus is putting on display his, his grace. The mission of the church is to know God and make him known as he made himself known. Let people know of the good news. Let people know. All right, verse 9. Fruit testifies of the root. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you'll see the pattern in this text, I feel like I need to do this, is it kind of starts with a periphery of reminders, do, don't do, here's why, here's what fuels that, and then here's the center of the gospel, and then it works its way back out into, if you understand the center of the gospel, then you will begin to churn in this direction. And so that's really what it's saying. Man, if, if you've been saved by grace, all right, um, and, and someone's like, man, yeah, grace is cute. I'm related to Pocahontas. Then they're probably not under the flow of grace. I, I say that because um, genealogies. And I remember one Thanksgiving, my family got together and decided we're related to John Rolfe, which would make us related to Pocahontas. And so if someone's going around in the church like, bro, I'm the man, you can tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. <laughs> going around in the church being like, everything's subject to me, dude. I'm related to Pocahontas. Like, Got like all the greatest high scores at David Buster's. Like, like, dude, there's a warning here. It's like, is that in accordance with the center of the gospel? Right? We want to start to see that if we're believing in the grace of God, that we're justified by faith, there's a certain fruit produced, a certain focus that we're called to. If the motive and testimony of people's lives do not line up with what grace is and how it blossoms, then they are probably not in grace or in the church for the purpose of Jesus. They're in the church for themselves, and it usually manifests in boasting, self-centeredness. You can see quarrels, controversies, dissensions, because being focused on Jesus taking the wrath of God just doesn't lead to those things. So the point is not avoid those things. The point is focus on Jesus. And if you're focusing on Jesus, you will be who God wants you to be. What God wants first and foremost for you is to see Jesus as he is and to love him as he is. And all the fruit and the good works will start to flow from that because you got your roots in the nutrients, right? In, in the soil of Jesus and his grace. People that are caught under the law or caught under the flow of grace are captivated by the grace and the grace giver. You can tell if someone's experiencing grace because they're like, this is awesome. 
I just need it. I need it so much. It's good news. Man, I wish on that day in that courtroom I had received grace. (laughs) I did. I did. Man, praise God. Lord, let this permeate every aspect of my life. Paul is writing. We are almost done. And I, I think it's super climactic and epic if the worship team comes up like as I'm ending because then there's like music in the background. So if you guys want to come up, it just always really builds the dynamic. You know, maybe something from Remember the Titans or something. (laughs) All right. Preserving the mission. Part of the mission is preservation of keeping the main thing, the focus. Part of the mission is insisting on that we have been justified by the grace of Jesus. We want to preserve that as the main thing. And we want to take it and share it with the world. We want to share it with one another. We want to remind each other that the grace of God has changed us. When the gospel no longer is the focus, then the church is no longer on the mission of Jesus. If you focus on preserving the focus and the centrality of the gospel, the mission will always be fueled. That's why Jeff preaches the gospel every week because over time, your roots go in and you grow and blossom and bear fruit and you start to testify of Jesus. There's almost, I mean, there's an urgency, but the urgency is to see Christ correctly. And when you do, You'll help others see Christ correctly. Some final instructions and greetings. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to meet Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Man, if people are on the mission of Jesus, we ought to support them. Support each other. Man, if you know some missionaries, people, you know, just your pastor. Um, if you know people that are giving themselves, that are traveling, man, let God's grace fuel you to see that they lack nothing, that, that their mission is accomplished because their mission is God's mission. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Ultimately, what we see is that the roots of grace do produce a fruit. And these good works, we're not earning merit from God. We've already earned our merit in Jesus Christ. He earned it for us. And that brings such a joy to our hearts that we're unleashed to say, man, freely have we received, freely we give. And we just point people back to Jesus. Here's the thing. The great commandment fuels the great commission. And the great commandment is the end of the great commission. What I mean by that is, if the great commandment is love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you love your neighbor best by helping them love Jesus. Because the number one command for you is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and help your neighbor love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how you can love them best. And if we're going to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that we've commanded, all that Jesus has commanded, we do that best by helping them love Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Four instructions. See that they lack nothing. Learn to devote yourself to good works. Help cases of urgent need. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Church, grace is the flavor of God. And grace-filled people are on grace-fueled mission. Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us. God, make it clear to us that Jesus took our place in the courtroom, that the fullness of God's wrath was expressed, but not on us. But now we can receive his grace because Jesus took our place before the wrath of God. Thank you. Lord, that the full penalty has been exhausted on Jesus. There's not any lingering fines. You've done it. And Jesus, we acknowledge you and we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.